Hello, my name is Anoa Changa. Evening, everybody. Happy March 1st. In case you were wondering, it's only three months from my birthday. So if you want to give me a present, you know, I'm exactly three months for another birthday. Just joking. Anyway, hope you guys are doing well. Today is March 1st. We are three months into this wacky ride that has been 2017 thus far. Um, I am making the best of it. I hope you are too. So much has happened in the past several days, but there's so much happening that we're going to have to bump some of this kind for uh, another special segment later in the week or early in the morning or something. I don't know what to figure out. But tonight we're going to talk about um, a couple of things that have been happening recently. One is um, this past weekend was the fifth anniversary of the murder of Trayvon Martin. And I am joined tonight by writer, New York Daily News writer, Chuck Modiano. Um, Chuck wrote two really great pieces actually last week. One about um, basically looking at athlete activism and social media presence in the wake of Trayvon's murder. And then also he wrote another piece approximately a week ago um, about why progressives should boycott Bill Maher. Um, and even though kind of we've had that, you know, Ben has had that Bill Maher, you know, Milo, Milo, whatever the hell his name is. I mean, he's a troll. I don't need to get his name right, right? So, we, you know, people have had this conversation. We've had this frustration with Bill Maher and, 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 and the whole interview and the bromance. But Chuck's piece, I really felt like put into words, like very laid it out concretely some of the major issues that we've had with Bill over the last several years anyway, and then culminating in this most recent interview that he had that um, really, you know, had the glaring sign like, okay, we need to stop giving this guy so much leeway. Um, so these two pieces, like I said, I really want to discuss tonight with the author and the writer who actually wrote them um, because I really think that they, they fit into this greater conversation that we're having about resistance and, um, you know, uh, uh, activism on social media, you know, freedom of speech, all these other concepts that we continue to talk about. And how do we find kind of our, our, our common ground as we're utilizing language, you know, to, to further our ideas and issues and concepts in this resistance moment, right? Um, we just saw last night with Van Jones praising President Trump for being presidential. And it's like, dude, like... <laughs> This is like this is like the parent that praises their kid because they did like some regular random you know thing, and it's like, yay! Look at you, you're so fabulous. You did the most basic thing on earth, you know. And 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 and, and so we, we have all this normalization of different issues, this mediocrity. So again, thought this is a really great conversation. And then a little later, before we close out and turn it over to Ben, I want to talk just a little bit about Khalif Browder um, and shutting down Rikers. Um, tonight, if you have a chance, check out the first part. I think it's a six-part docuseries that's taking place on Spike tonight, looking at Khalif's experience, looking at his case, his life, 
Um, and Raise the Age overall. If you're not familiar with Raise the Age, you know, Raise the Age is, is the movement. New York is one of two states that automatically ch- tries, um, well, well uh, charges 16-year-olds as adults. Um, I mean, uh, 16-year-old kids will go directly to adult jail without any conversation, consideration, or anything for age. Um, and that was part of the problem in, in Khalif's case as well. So um, Chuck's going to be joining me on screen in a few moments, but we are ready. We can switch it over now and bring Chuck on because I'm excited to get this conversation started. Um, definitely have to give him a shout out because he shared my Nina interview. If you haven't shot any interview from this weekend, definitely check it out. So Chuck, thank you so much because I really do appreciate you for sharing. <laughs> Um, yeah, if you can, you just unmute yourself on the little, the little icon at the bottom. So Chuck is getting unmuted. Um, and we are, we are coming on screen, but again, have Chuck here. Super exciting. How about now? There you go. Yay. All right, there we go. Yay. Awesome. How are you? Uh, I, I'm so great. Um, great to be talking to you. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned your uh, interview with Nina Turner. I was listening to it and I was getting so inspired just listening to it. So I was wondering, I wonder what it's like to be right next to her. <laughs> it was it was an awesome experience. Like I said to you before we came on, Nina is like electric. Um, yeah. She gives us this great energy. So I was feeling electricity. So yeah, so I know we talked originally about the piece you wrote about five reasons why liberals should boycott Bill Maher. Sure. Um, but in, 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 in going back to read that piece, I saw the one you wrote this weekend. I was still in probably my DNC, you know, post-DNC uh, sleep. <laughs> yeah. So I saw the piece you wrote this weekend, though, before Kaepernick, Trayvon, Twitter, and right. NFL protests. Um, I think when we look at a ton, a, a lot of the stuff, especially all the activism that has been happening more frequently around around athletes. This was a really interesting piece, and I wanted to kind of start here and then we can go back to the other one. That's okay. Um, um, I really, I thought this was interesting, and I really do appreciate your perspective as someone who does write and communicate about sports, and yeah. then tying it into the social activism and and, and the other aspects, you know, sure. of things going on in our world. Um, so what kind of I mean, obviously, it was the fifth anniversary, as I said earlier, of Trayvon Martin's murder. But what kind of like was going through your mind, like putting this piece together um, and kind of, you know, just having this this conversation laid out and the way you went about it? Well, you know, I think Trayvon Martin is a very key uh, story, not just for propelling the fight against police brutality, but it's the coming out story of athletes. You know, the rebirth. We, we know what's happened in this season and pieces since then. But the convergence of Trayvon Martin and Twitter, and we have to say Twitter now, um, allowed young uh, athletes to speak for themselves in ways they didn't. So I think what everybody understands is the LeBron picture and the Miami Heat team picture. Everybody is aware of that. And that helped to push things forward. Chris Webber is actually the first athlete to really speak in depth about uh, Trayvon Martin. He was having his own radio show, and he decided to just say, hey, listen, I'm going to talk about Trayvon Martin today. 
Uh, this is more important than sports. So he started talking about that. It didn't get any coverage. When LeBron and the Miami Heat put on their hoodies, then it got a lot of coverage. And you saw a number of athletes. You saw, um, obviously, we Dwayne Wade. We saw uh, um, some people, Mrs. Uh, Steve Nash put on his hoodie. Kevin Durant put on his hoodie. Carmelo Anthony was probably one of the first people to put on his hoodie and say, I am Trayvon Martin across his chest. Omari Stoudemire put on his hoodie. So it was, I'm not saying it was the strongest statement, but these were symbolic statements that we hadn't seen in a long time. And in many ways, um, Twitter gave athletes the voice that they may not have done in years past. Yeah, I'm, I mean, like we, we, there was that it seems like just like with our activism and organizing and movements, we've seen this 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 new wave of, of heightened activity. It definitely seems that way in terms of athletes and, and engaging, you know, in socially conscious activity in a certain way. Um, and, and like you said, like, you know, it, it might not have been the strongest statement. But it still was a very powerful statement to have yeah. made. And I think, you know, in the piece about how the issues with contracts and how like with the NFL players, for example, they they don't they can be let go for any reason. Right. Yeah. Like so, so. So they have no job security. So, you know, whereas there might be have been the inclination in, in, in years past to not say or do anything um, because of that, people are willing, or, or some people at least are being vocal and expressing themselves. On um, the NBA, I know uh, I saw someone was saying that, that that they were required to stand, at least in terms of the, the, the Pledge of Allegiance and stuff like that as a part of their contracts. So just even the intricacies of what's being expected of certain players versus others across the sports and stuff and how that could limit their interaction with activism. I, I thought that was interesting. So I like this piece and how you were going through how Twitter gave voice yeah. um, to a group that we tend to think of as very being very powerful as well. You know, absolutely. And, and you know, that also mirrors Twitter as becoming a force and Twitter really came became a force with Mike Brown. And I and I somewhat yeah. sort of reject I don't reject, but I understand both sides where you have on the ground activists sometimes saying, OK, um, don't just be on Twitter and Twitter activists maybe not being in touch on the ground. But as someone who's been on the ground often in Ferguson and been active on Twitter, um, you'd really need both. I mean, all the ingredients for Oscar Grant a few years earlier were there. Mm -hmm. People in the streets went out. Police were out in riot gear. There was confrontation. There was arrest. A lot of the ingredients were there, but the maturity of Twitter was not there to communicate that on a national level in many ways. Right. was able in Ferguson. And I think Trayvon was sort of the starting point of a convergence between the medium and um, and the, the brutality. And I want to be clear about something. I get a little bit annoyed when some people tell me um, it's George Zimmerman and Trayvon wasn't a police case. If Trayvon was arrested like he should have been arrested right away, then you know what? We probably would never have heard Trayvon's name. But the Sanford police said, you know what? I'm going to pat you on the back. You killed a young black boy. Good job. And they gave him back his gun, essentially is what happened. So when we look at the outrage for Trayvon, or we look at the outrage for Mike Brown, or we look at the outrage for Eric Garner, we see a pattern. There was no arrest. And we have to really talk about, well, what? how low is the bar for a young black man to get arrested? See Khalif Browder, for instance, just being right. alleged to have stolen a backpack. So the outrage is completely justified because the bar is so low. And then you could kill a, a young black man and it's no problem. So right, or, or 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 lock him up for three years for nothing um, um, and, and take away his youth. Right. Yeah. Because, the bar, like you said, the bar is so low. Um, 
No, I think you make a great point. It's particularly about like had had Zimmerman been arrested right away yeah. when it happened and not sent like like you say, I think you say he was, you know, patted on his back and said, Off you go, giving his gun back. Yeah, and that was that. And it wasn't until there was the protest, it wasn't until there was the outrage because of their inaction that we did know of that case. I mean, you know, same thing with the Michael Dunn case to some extent in Jordan Davis, you know, not too far away, also in Florida. Like we 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 do we learn the names when now we learn a name because social media, because people are there on the scene and we're sharing news so quickly. But 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 just a few years ago, three to five years ago. We we were hearing trickles of stories, maybe only once there was like massive outrage or inaction, like you were saying. So I, I think that that's a that's a very good point. But just just turning back to this piece just a little bit, like just looking at the parallels, right, between between this action, you know, starting with Trayvon's murder to now, where you have football players who are not only refusing to go to the White House and taking the stand that way, yeah. you have um, you have the uh, 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 you have the players who refuse to go on the, to the trip to Israel recently as well. Yeah, sure. um, I mean, I mean, you know, they people are standing up and saying, regardless of what their yes. their, their their career is, right? Yeah. Are saying like, no, <laughs> like social justice is an issue important to me. Racial justice is an issue that's important yeah. to me. And I'm standing by that no matter what. And I think that, you know, we often talk about whether or not athletes and entertainers should be role models to children or not. But this is definitely the type of behavior I want to see young people, you know, modeling and and, and, and inspired by. Oh, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I love what Colin Kaepernick's doing, particularly as an NFL player who who knows it's going to affect millions of dollars. He is he is at peace with that. At the same time, I, I want to say something, and this is very important to uh, appoint in Ferguson, um, mm-hmm. because everybody remembers the Rams players with their hands up when they yes. came out of the, yes, the tunnel. Absolutely. But what people don't know is prior to the Rams players coming out, there were at least four protests by regular Ferguson protesters at Car- St. Louis Cardinals games, at mm-hmm. Rams games, and they were outside there making a lot of noise. I know this because I was at three of them myself. So, and, and, and we had video and there was a lot of that going on. So when they interviewed the Rams players afterwards, they said, we wanted to stand in solidarity with the Ferguson protesters. This is the language they use. And I think it's a real important point because when we get into this discussion of athletes, it's always feeling like the athletes will lead the people. But if you actually right. look closer, it's the people leading the athletes. And right, that is right. actually true in the 1960s as well. But it has been written out of history about the number of colleges who protested prior to a number of high profile athletes who spoke out. And it's, it's very empowering to learn that and to understand that. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point to show that athletes are using their position and profile to leverage and elevate the voice of people who are already out there doing the work. And that, again, goes back to what we're talking about with utilizing these mediums and these different platforms and stuff and merging the digital with the actual on the ground in real life work that is happening. I mean, I do think that the marriage between the digital and the on the ground work is what's going to help us in this resistance phase and beyond, right? Because we need to not just be in this moment, but continue yeah. to work to, 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 to tighten our structures and, and coalitions and cooperatives as we move forward. So I liked, I really did like this piece because you even go back to like, you know, 1999 with concerns over, you know, with NFL players, with their concerns of, and the different issues with the contracts, like all the different intricacies and stuff to put it out there. And it, and it, it is something, I mean, I know there are people out there who are like, oh, poor, poor, poor athletes, but 
But it's a, it's a real concern, you know, when you don't have a guaranteed contract, when you're playing and it can be snatched away from you. Um, it, it, it speaks to me personally as, as a mom of a son who loves football. It speaks to me to see these, these brothers who will get out there um, and are willing to say, you know, this is right, right, you know, and I'm going to say it even if it means money's on the line. And, and, and we need more people who are willing to do that across, you know, career paths and genres. Sure. Absolutely. So that actually then kind of takes me into the other piece that you wrote. Yeah, yeah. Um, five reasons why liberals should boycott Bill Maher. Yes. Um, and the video that is attached, like, I mean, like, like, I appreciate this piece because it's an open letter, basically, right? To, to, to anyone yeah. who was trying to make excuses for or, you know, because we've had we've seen the whole dialogue and back and forth about free speech and everybody has the right to speak and blah, blah, blah. But but you lay it out for why yeah. we can no longer make excuses for this type of yeah. outright violent language and hatred. Sure. Um. So what I, I, I know because I read it, but what can you describe for us? Like, what was your tipping point with this piece? What was well, the, well, it's funny you say tipping point because I used to be a big Bill Maher fan. I'm not, I will admit it. When Bill Politically Maher, incorrect used to be the yeah. show. <laughs> it, 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 no, it's funny you say that. It used to be the show. And at that time in, in the 90s, when mm-hmm. Bill Maher came in, it was pretty radical stuff for, for regular TV. It really and, was. And so let me start by giving Bill Maher a credit for opening a door for um, people on the left to voice their concern and voice their outrage. Um, in ways that prior to Bill Maher, you really could not do. And I want to extend that credit because that's real credit. I used to be a fan and I used to cheer him on. And yeah. and when he's on point, when he is on message, he's really, really good. And like an old athlete who has stayed on too long, that, <laughs> that, that Bill Maher is my, you know. He's an old boxer past his prime. He's an old boxer past his prime. The world has changed and he's still doing and as I write in the article, he's still part Republican partying like it's 1999, which is a new <laughs> day. You see, so the the premise of his show is to invite on these you know crazy people on the right, and in, in that that um, pattern looked very different in the 90s than it looks in 2017. Right. Um, you know, you know. So when you let let's let's use the example of Milo, which is everybody uh, has been talking about. When you invite a white nationalist on your show. Okay, number one, you shouldn't be inviting white nationals on your show. Just like just as a general principle rule, you shouldn't do that. And when you do that, um, the only possible explanation would be to absolutely and utterly destroy him on your show. Not only do you invite him, but I thought they were sipping tea and chumming it up yes. and, and talking more about what they had They're in like common. Little old ladies, you know, Miles Smith were on his pearls. Yeah, and- I know. <laughs> you were. You were banned from Berkeley too. Oh, me too. Oh, the oppression that we face. I mean, it was it was ridiculous. Okay, there were maybe five hundred different points he didn't mention, and to some degree, he may not have been prepared because he just learned. And by his own admission, he had just learned about Milo a few days later, a few days earlier, um, when he was right. speaking to Van Jones, which tells me he's out of the Twitter bubble because anybody who's been involved in talking about race and has been had any kind of um. Uh, Twitter presence knows that this man is a vile human being, is is a white nationalist, and is a, a, a basically a Twitter troll of white nationalism. And the, I call the alt right movement. And Bill still invites him, so he makes a mistake, and then they have tea and biscuits. So here's what's here's what's interesting. 
when we get into this language of, well, why did you mainstream him? And I and I and many others have accused him of mainstreaming Ann Coulter, helping to do that as well. Right. So when we use that language, the, the pushback we get and that I've gotten and you have gotten is he's not mainstreaming him. He's putting sunlight as the best disinfectant and all this knowledge. Well, in this Mark case, we actually have the proof. The next morning, CPAC invited him to speak as a keynote. And for those unaware of what CPAC is, CPAC is only the most important, influential Republican convention where not only yeah. do you have your Trumps and your Pences and your politicos, but you have young thousands of youth there. You have a prime voice at the conference. So mm -hmm. we have just literally within less than 24 hours elevated white nationalism to the white nationalism to the highest stage yep you don't get to say sunlight's the best, uh, best disinfectant that's what we call sunburn okay and there's a big difference between the two and milo's downfall ironically did not come from bill maher it came from a conservative group despite despite his trying to take credit for it you know a couple of days later but but part of what i think that you said that was that was that was so great about that um about how they just had the tea and biscuits and stuff he there was no pushback because whether he knew about him or not you know milo said a couple at a different points some very foul outright false things transphobia the extreme transphobia that whole conversation about the bathroom that was not only, and, and at this point, you know what I'm saying, Bill should know enough logically, reasonably, and factually to have been able to refute it or push back some, but there was no pushback. There was all, like you said, it was a mutual love society type of thing that went on. And, and the thing is, if you're going to insist that we, that people have access and we let people speak, then there needs to be someone there in real time, right? Yeah. To actually refute them, not on the after show on YouTube or not in the comments later on. Yeah. Like you have to, if you're going to give these people a platform, then you have to meet them right there where they're at in that space, in that moment, not let it go to a couple of days later. It's like, oh, I didn't mean to, or it's yeah. not that big of a deal. No, it's a very, like you said, because when these people have a platform and they're able to speak and engage with folks and they're spreading not just their their own particular brand of hate, but also misinformation. They're spreading, um, David, my producer and I, we had an exchange with someone going on and on about why would we want our daughters to, to see men using the bathroom? And I'm like, I don't know what women's bathroom you've been in, but we have stalls. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. We have stalls. So I don't even know that that's like a concern. Like, yeah. I don't know. And remember what he said. He said, yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. Next. Yeah. And he moved on. So right. if, is this liberalism? Is this really progressivism? Because I want to know if it is. And, you know, and, and we could talk, you could go online and see the streams of Islamophobia. And, the, you know, I've gotten a lot of pushback on the article. I got a lot of love. I got a lot of hate. And then I got a lot of stuff in between. And mm -hmm. what's in interesting about the stuff in between, the, one of the most common pieces is they, you're a purist. You want everything perfect. And they and usually says, well, if you agree with 80 percent of what Mars says, then, you know, why do you care about the 20 percent? I say, well, it's not really that the 20 percent. That's the problem. There are a lot of people I find acceptable. I only agree with um, 40 percent of what they say is that the 20 percent is so vehemently outrageous right. and is so bigoted that we don't allow that 20 percent. There's no place for bigotry. We don't we don't co-sign white nationalism. We condemn it. We don't co-sign Islamophobia. We condemn it. And if you're going to bring someone on who's Islamophobic to the level that he is, are we saying we no longer care about um, 
uh, uh, the Muslim community? Are we willing to make that deal or the, the, right. the transphobic community? It's ridiculous. So the, what really it's not so much about Bill Maher is a question for progressives to say, where exactly do you draw the line? Right. You, you really need to introspect on this because there are other comedians out there. He's not the only funny person in the universe. We could find some other people to replace him. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I think the point that you, you bring out about like, well, you know, not everything he says, you know, he says some good stuff, too. And like, does that? Matter? I mean, just think about Trump's, you know, address last night. Right. He said <laughs> some stuff that sounded decent last night, too. Do we then just say, oh, OK, let's 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 just see how this goes. No, you, that doesn't mean that you don't criticize. It doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable. I think what I took away from this is that. No, we need to be holding people accountable. We're saying that we as a group, as a organizing faction, so to speak, for lack of a better term right now, if we hold certain values in general and these people are supposedly among us, then we need to hold them accountable for what for what we're saying that we're about. We can't just let people get away with, um, like you said, normalizing hatred, normalizing, you know, white supremacy, which is what exactly what he has done. Particularly, I mean, we we were having this conversation even before this this um Several of us are having this conversation in terms of his attitude towards Muslims and, and his his Islamophobia and 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 how there is a segment of the the left or progressives or liberals or whatever terminology is being used that does have this this it may not be as egregious as you know Republicans but it's there it's and there. they don't really want to engage you know Muslim activists and organizers and stuff because. They're happy in their little bubble where they are, and they will spout things that are rather um, dangerous, ultimately. And and it gets validated by Bill Maher from the yeah. left. So if you, if you yeah. go on Breitbart's site, they'll say, look, even Bill Maher Absolutely. says Muslims are crazy. You know, So you, we can't have that kind of validation, but it also opens up a, a larger um, platform of the other biggest criticism I get, which is, well, what about free speech? Aren't you for free speech? And actually, what we're talking about is privileged speech. Okay, H have you been invited on on Bill Maher's show, Noah? No, I can't no. even get on CNN. <laughs> no, right. I haven't been involved, uh, invited. Millions haven't been invited. Right. In fact, Ann Coulter is more likely to get an invite than a Muslim scholar who might challenge him on his BS. Okay. Absolutely. So this is not um, um, a free speech. It's free publicity, and it's unbelievable how many people do not know the difference between free publicity and free speech. So I, you know what? It, it goes to a larger discussion. So I, I've gotten so many um, hits over Twitter saying, so you want to oppress um, free speech? I don't want to oppress free speech. Am I oppressed for not being on Bill Maher's show? You need to understand that free speech just means you're not going to go to jail. Everything beyond that is publicity. Absolutely. <laughs> no, very true. And like you point out, you know, when you, when, earlier on, we were talking about how even his format is dangerous for modern times, yeah. like how we engage, how we communicate, who we shine lights on as being a valid voice, because he is, it's also problematic when someone is a trusted voice, right? There yeah. is someone that we, he's like that old crotchety uncle that, that we, that, you know, drops some good wisdom yes. every once in a while that you've gotten used to. And now they're getting senile. <laughs> and it's like, yes, it's like, yeah, you need to not be talking anymore. Yeah. <laughs> like, dude, what yeah. are you doing? Thank you. Thank you for your service, Mr. Marr. Let's let someone new come in and take the comedic reins because he is um, a danger. I, I consider him a danger now because he validates some of the worst Islamophobia on the right. And I, and I have to make this connection that I made earlier with Milo and Coulter, who was previously spoke at CPAC. And she called Muslims ragheads. 
to the right. applause of thousands. This was in 2006, okay? Mm -hmm. So many times she's come on his show. He calls her a good friend. They're very chummy. At no point did she look, did Bill Maher look Ann Coulter in the eye and said, you called Muslims ragheads at the CPAC conference that, that um, influences public policy. I need you to talk about that bigotry right now and, and put her under the microscope. He never does that to Ann Coulter, and he's helped right. mainstream Ann Coulter. So we've seen Milo before. We've seen what Bill Mars helped facilitate before. And for those who don't know, for those who dismiss Ann Coulter as a bigoted blowhard we see on TV, she is actually helping form public policy. Donald Trump read her book and had high reviews for her book. This is the man who is the commander in chief. So before we dismiss everyone as just words or she's just being uh, offensive, we are talking about crafting public policy. So I'm getting tired of those people who think it's about feelings and words. We're talking about something much more serious. That is actually a very interesting way that you put that, though, right? Because, you know, people like Mar who are giving folks like Coulter and, and, and Milo platforms and then and, 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 you know, the bright work connection and stuff in there and then the bright work connection with the administration, you know, they're expanding these platforms and normalizing them for these more conservative, making them more palatable, right, for, for right. This, this different audience. But that in turn, as we see this new you know, I guess, wave within the Republican Party and conservatives, this, this Trump conservatism or whatever it's called, um, how that's actually informing. So you're legitimate. He's legitimizing, you know, their efforts. Yes. But these are people who are actually informing and shaping policy and leadership. Yes. That is then in turn infecting, you know, the populace and spreading like some type of locust or disease like like <laughs> Like, like, like what you just said, it, I never thought about it like that. Like Ann Coulter informs Donald Trump yes. and Donald Trump in turn runs America now like that. Yes. That's scary. Yes. It's scary. She opened for her shows. He, she reads his book. He believes Ann Coulter is a top thinker. This is a, this is where we're, we are right now. So let's stop talking about Bill Maher's words as we're just, they're just words. They're more than words. They're policy. They're more than words, they're policy. I mean, that that's this is what we're talking about at stake. This whole, just like you said, it's it's about privileged speech. And this is a very privileged level of speech when we're looking at people who are able to form impressions upon and inform the man who's now the unit the president of the United States of America, no matter how much we don't want him to be. Right. And part of that is is quite frankly. Um, Bill Maher's uh, white male hetero privilege because mm, when these mm -hmm. things turn into policy, he's not going to be hurt by them. So he prioritizes his want and need to say whatever he wants to say, when he wants to say it, how he wants to say it over actual human lives because it, his, his basic approach to speech is we say anything and let the chips fall where they may. But we know when the chips fall where they may on ice raids or the chips fall where they may on Muslims and the, and the chips fall uh, where they may on um, police brutality, on the Khalif Browers, he is not going to be one paying the cost. And a lot of his followers, and particularly white followers, are have the same privilege in not giving him up because their humor and their late night, late night entertainment is actually more important than human lives. Wow. And I know some people say, well, it's just TV. It's just but like you just you just made a great connection in terms of 
how it informs other people, how it makes, because all of these, everything that we all do, right, as content creators, we're not the Bill Mars of the world, but you're leveraging people's brands and giving them voice and opportunity so that they can have access to these greater platforms. And they're shaping and engaging with the policymakers and the leaders who do directly impact and touch our lives. And like you just mentioned, even when we're looking at situations with Khalif and, and other young people like him, we have an attorney general right now who is hand selected by someone who thinks Ann Coulter is the cat's meow. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah. know, and, and we see a reluctance to actually address the real issues that are occurring, not just in our criminal justice system um, or criminal injustice system, but also in terms of, you know, police brutality cases with them, with the, with the DOJ now, you know, deciding to stand down from several active investigations. I mean, saying like, you know, Bill Maher needs to be boycotted or we need to challenge when he has certain guests on. It really does have, I mean, people really need to start thinking about how things are actually manifesting in real time and how these folks are now engaging with the political class um, and shaping policy. Everything you just said, Anoa. <laughs> <laughs> no, just, 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 just real quick. How did you get so woke and radical? Um, um, <laughs> wasn't ready for that question, but... Um, let, let me let me just say this. Uh, I, I have been going to police protests for a while and this and that. Mm -hmm. And for those who, who, who aren't sure, I, I, I'm a um, white male. And I uh, and I say that's important because, you know, you mentioned Khalif Browder is going to be um, on tonight. Right? right. And he's going to be on tonight. And if there's so many things wrong with his case and I, I want everyone to really watch that series, I want Trump by the way okay and um and, and and let me just make a caveat i i stay away from the word woke and the reason i stay away from it i know it's very popular and everyone uses it it is very popular forgive me for yes. using it but go ahead I no i'm not forgiving you i'm not forgiving ahead. you i'm not forgiving you but i have to just make a point i don't believe there's any arrival point to woke i believe that awesome. it is okay. a lifelong journey and i never want to consider myself woke because i always have more to learn and if you're if you're born in the skin or if you're a male or if you're white or if you're heterosexual, um, every day I could learn a little more nuance of privilege that I have that I may not have noticed the day before. So I that's like a lifelong that. okay. yeah. so yeah. life journey. Yeah. But, but as we talk about, um, you know, uh, Khalif Browder, um, Khalif Browder is someone who is going to jail. OK, and, and we'll hear about the story. It's everything that's wrong in a criminal justice system. We ended up committing suicide um, and uh, he ended up going into solitary confinement. He ended mm -hmm. up getting beaten in jail. He ended up being forced to plead bargain, which he he didn't. And all of this with just the alleged um, accusation of stealing a backpack, OK, mm -hmm. which he denied from jump. We're talking a 16 year old. Yeah. And a series of events happened which showed every single thing that's wrong with the criminal justice system. It, it showed it's a systemic case. His life, hopefully it doesn't um, end in vain. And we could learn from him starting with this series in, in a greater depth. But let me just say this. What he was accused of stealing a backpack. I know many people during struggling years when they're 18, 19, 20 or whatever, who stole a lot of things and they were white and they got away with it or shoplifted and got away with it. And I would be um, remiss to say if I wasn't one of those people during hard times, during hard right. years, who, who recognized their privilege at a time when I lost my economic privilege. I want to say that mm -hmm. I recognized my white privilege, I lost my economic privilege. And, and the reason I say that is because you asked the question, I wasn't planning to say it, but, but it's important that particularly white people who are watching um, the show tonight realize that they are not Khalif Browder. Realize that you could get away with many of the things 
that Khalif Browder actually probably never did because uh, and he would go to jail and he went into jail and he was tortured because he's a young black man. Mm -hmm. And we have to start there. And he was also tortured because he was a poor young black man. And what that means is if he had thirty five hundred dollars bail, he could have gotten out of jail. He couldn't afford his mother couldn't afford the thirty five hundred dollars bail. So he stayed there. So we're talking about a a um, intersection of racism and classism in a way that plays itself mm -hmm. out and shows everything that is wrong, terrible and torturous with the criminal justice system. So I got off myself a little bit. I went to Khalif Browder. No, no, no. I, I love it. That was, that was, no, 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 no. That was absolutely yeah. wonderful. I appreciate that so much. And, and, and you gave me a little lesson in, in, in not, in, in the journey, in the process. I like the way you said that when I asked you about be a woke and radical. Um, cause I know that's the terms that people use and stuff, but I like the way yeah. you said that, how it's always an evolving process and, 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 and it is, you know, I find myself, you know, the same thing. I'm just like, wow, I'm learning something new and, and growing more, um, as I become more aware and alert and understanding of where I fit in the different junctures. Um, well, I understand and, and, that, but I didn't, I didn't mean that for you. And I'm going to tell you, no, 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 I, but what I'm saying is you gave me something to think about though. Like I appreciate that. Okay, but at the end of the day, 95% um, of African-American women did not vote for Trump and 63% <laughs> of white men voted for Trump. So I'm really not worried. Well, African-American women are the quote-unquote wokest people on this planet. So this really wasn't meant for you. This was meant for white folks, not just the 63% of white men who voted for Trump or the 53% of white women who voted for Trump, but the everyone else who seems yeah. to not done their job at Thanksgiving dinner during family functions to hold other white family and friends accountable when they say and do bigoted stuff. Okay, so I think what we saw that the Trump vote is a failure of all of white society, including myself, in holding other whites accountable. And that is part something that has to change. Well, I'm going to put a pin it right there because I don't think I can top that. Um, <laughs> Chuck, my friend, I greatly appreciate you joining me. This was a great conversation, and I hope we I have it. another one very soon. Um, this was awesome. You I, rock. I, I, no, I appreciate you. I really do. Thank you I so much for having me. I appreciate you too in your it's, work. It's a privilege. Thank you. Have a good yeah. evening. I appreciate you so much. Okay, you too. You have a great one. Awesome. Hey, make yeah. sure everybody watching watches 10 p.m. tonight. Definitely. Um, 10 p.m. at Spike. It's on Spike. Exactly. Um, it's the first in the six part miniseries. I think Jay-Z was involved. I mean, don't watch yeah. it because Jay-Z was involved, but watch right. it because it's a it's a compelling story. Um, and there, there's a whole big movement. And, and last minute I had Adrian come on who just popped in to talk to me about, you know, the shutdown Rikers. A little bit since it ties into all this. So I'm going to get her in here for a few minutes. But thank you so much. Chuck. I'll talk to you soon. You got it. Thank you. Adrian, how are you? I am okay. I'm struggling you. with this camera thing. <laughs> you don't have to be on camera if you don't want to. You can turn it off. You can have it on. It's okay. I well, just I figured have to get used to it. Well, instead of me talking about you know the shutdown strike, um, the, the shutdown Rikers, you know, operation that's going on, protest. I figured I would have you do it instead of me, you know, showing your tweets and reading your piece that you wrote today. Because um, you wrote a piece earlier today about um, Khalif and the shutdown Rikers and Raise the Age. So I figured I'd give you a few minutes to talk about that. What's going on? What's at stake? And what we should be looking out for? Uh, well, um, there are many things at stake. Um, so um, I'm sorry, the gentleman's name that was on before me? Chuck Modiano. Chuck 
Liano. He's Chuck Modi on um, Twitter, yes, right? On Twitter, yeah. We love Chuck Modi. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. No, well, the thing is, is that, you know, he brought up a lot of points. There are class issues. There's definitely a race issue. There's definitely mental health issues. I mean, I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many things going on at Rikers that you, you cannot even begin to understand. Uh, and you think about Khalif's case um, specifically, it had so many of the wrongs in his case. It was like, mm-hmm. if everything could go wrong, it went wrong with him. Too poor to afford bail. Um, he was he was also young. He didn't even belong in there to me. You know, he's only 16 years old. Right. Um, uh, the, the, it was a book bag that was stolen. These are these are small, tiny. It wasn't stolen. He was accused of stealing. Let me let me be clear. He was um, accused of stealing a book bag and then got sent to Rikers. And if anybody knows anything about Rikers, like that's extreme. It's extreme. It's hardcore. It's 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 a horrific place to be because not only is he in there with um, young people like himself, he's in there with hardened criminals who actually mm-hmm. have been. Um, murdering people yes. who have been and i don't want to say that like that because they have not been convicted 95 percent of the people at rikers have been convicted yet but you know a lot of horrible things go on in rikers right. and it's not just the it's not just the uh inmates it's also the corrections officers so there's so many things that he was working against while he was in there and um if if you had a, a story you say well you know what tell me what rikers is like in in you put his story up. This is what Rikers is like, and that's that's what's really sad about it. Because he, um, his brother, Akeem brother, he always says that this is not an isolated incident. Like there are other people that actually commit suicide on Rikers. Khalif tried to commit suicide on Rikers before he got out. Mm. That's not always a well-known fact, but it's true. When he got out, he did manage to commit suicide. But imagine being in Rikers for being accused of stealing a, a knapsack and being in solitary confinement for two years, two years. Like, and this is a baby when he went in, he's 16 years old. And that's the other thing. They have to start seeing our children as children. Like this is not a grown man. This is a child he has. And he said he lost his childhood. I, I posted one of his quotes. Um, I saw it on, um, I think Spike TV ad. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't even seen this quote before until I saw that ad. And it really broke my, every time you hear the story, it like literally breaks your heart over and over again, because every time you think it's, it couldn't be any worse, it is worse. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it is, it's so many more things. I know I'm rambling. So if you want to ask me, no, some no, no, you're fine. Maybe- like this is <laughs> no, since you good. like, because I think one of the things that you just said this, I've heard the statistic, but just to hear somebody say it out loud, 95% of the people who are at Rikers right now have been tr- accused. They are not actually convicted. Right. They're not convicted. Let me see that if I can is, pull up my current number. That is mm-hmm. insane. Yes. It that is like, that is so wild that, 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 you know, there, are, and, 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 I mean, Khalif's case brings, brings to like, not just like in New York with the raise, raise the age, the push for raise the age, which is, you know, New York is one of the two states where 16, they're automatically charged and treated as an adult. But then also, like you just said, that there's issue with bail, you know, um, making sure that bail is equitable and affordable um, because there's so many people across the country who are in the criminal justice system because they can't afford either bail 
or some other type of fees and stuff attached to whether it's probation or anything like that. Like there are just so many issues that overlap. Then, then again, also, like you said, the mental health issues and then the violence inside the prison system, whether it's from other inmates or the guards themselves, because Rikers has had a host of issues in terms of abuses and brutality by the prison guards. I mean, and then, like you said, we take a 16 year old, a kid and put them in the midst of all of that. Right. Um, right. And then at the end of three years, solitary confinement, all this stuff, it's like, oh, well, our bad. Good luck. Right. I mean, that that. It's 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 unfathomable that 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 is the condition. And like you said, there are many caliphs in the system. You know, right. there there are young men and young women that are sitting up there at Rikers um, that, that that have these experiences and others. And, and 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 we as a community. So so tell me about um, the, the 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 effort to shut it down. Okay, so um, well, certain several things that we're doing. So the first thing is that we want to address the fact that um, they they have not been standing abiding by the speedy trial law, you know. Okay. So we um have actually um gone out and they have something called Khalif's law, where it's you know they they want to make sure that they abide by the speedy trial because three years for a stolen book bag and you still haven't been convicted of anything and then you get let go and they're just like oops, just like like you said. This is not this is not unusual. This is normal for Rikers. Like what they do is they try to wear you down by taking plea deals. These kids often and, you know, they often take these plea deals, not realizing that it's going to ruin their lives. You get what I'm saying? So they take these plea deals so they can get out of Rikers, which is a hell hole. And then, you know, they say, oh, you know what's going to happen. But now when if anything happens to them again, they have this on their record. You get what I'm saying? So in order to to actually negate that some way, it's like, okay, so now it's six months, you'll be there. And then within six months, you'll either have had the trial or they'll have to let you go. But um, it's it, it passed the assembly, but it has not passed the state senate because um, <laughs> they, they claim it's a Republican house, so there's a problem there. So um, I just wanted to correct figures. So um, it's 85% of people on Rikers have not been convicted of crime. That's so very high. It's that's very so high. It's very high. That's astronomical. Um, <laughs> it is astronomical. So the other thing that we're trying to do is um, uh, we're trying to reach out to different families on Rikers to get the actual mm-hmm. stories and the actual grievances. And we're actually trying to work with um, them to figure out um, what it is that they need there. But as also outside of it, we understand that just shutting down Rikers isn't enough. And we don't want to open a new jail. What we want to do do is demand from the state and from the city that they provide services to the community so that we do not have to have people in these jails. You know, they will have jobs, they will have affordable housing, um, they will have mental health um, care, which is really a big factor on Rikers Island. Like, I don't know if you know, in New York City, um, I think in the the 90s, I, I don't want to be wrong, but I think in the 90s, they cut a lot of the mental health services in the city. Mm. And that's a huge issue because now you have people in jail that really don't belong in jail because, you know, they don't have enough medication. They don't, they're not being treated for what they, what's wrong with them. So jail is not a solution. We should not be housing mental health patients in jail. Absolutely. You get what I'm saying? And, and so, you know, we want to work to further community services. We do not want to um, open up new jails and say, okay, Rikers Island is the problem. We're going to open up something pretty and fancy because what's going to happen is they're going to transport those guards from Rikers 
into this pretty and fancy jail mm-hmm. and you're just going to have the same mentality. We, we don't want that. We don't want our kids in jail for trivial things. You know, you have um, the uh, swipe it forward movement, which is um, very big in New York now. Instead of kids hopping the turnstile, folks are swiping, passing their swipes along. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Because these these young kids, it's about a lot of young kids are being arrested and put in jail for a $2.75 crime. Yeah. $2.75, you're going to waste taxpayer money for $2.75? You're going to mess up this kid's life for $2.75? So these are the kind of, you know, it, it's just like they, they value property more than they value life. And our kids are ending up in jail because they don't have any money. The, the thick of it. Man. That's really the thick of it. Well, I am going to have to definitely get back with you. You and I need to talk a little bit more about a couple of different things, but I want to talk more about this issue and let's do a whole episode around this. Um, but Ben is actually getting ready to come on right behind me, but let's talk some more. I do appreciate you hopping on last minute. I have to put a pin in it right there, but I do appreciate you coming on last minute. I do want to, I'll hit you up so we can fin- so we can talk more about building out an entire episode on this issue because um, I knew it was real and it's been going on, but like definitely seeing the alerts about Khalif's uh, a docuseries happening. I'm like, yeah, I got it. We, we got to have a conversation. So I do appreciate you joining. We appreciate you. Day. Thank you so much. And Chuck, thank you for hanging around and stuff. Appreciate you guys and That's everybody right. who's watched and hung out, you know, definitely. Um, I'm going to tweet out links to everybody and everything we've talked about tonight. As soon as we got the air, tune in to Ben because he's getting ready to start. And um, make sure 10 o'clock Spike TV, check out um, the first of six episodes in this docuseries about Khalif Browder. So this has been with the way of Fanoa. Appreciate my guests. Appreciate you. Good night.